0: Good morning, it's, uh, I, I, I do like the way we highlight this, I appreciate Jake for putting these things together, this, those of you that haven't been here in a while, we, we miss you, but in our pews we actually have a card that uh, explains what we're doing in worship, and if some of you would like to see a, like a, file, a PDF of that, we can email that out to you, but that first step of when we come together acknowledging the fact that God is with us. It's, it's not that He's ever not been. It's just that we take the moment to actually say He's, he's here. And I, I find, in, especially in weeks like this past week, to just take a deep breath and realize in our own personal worship that we are not alone, that God is with us is very important. Uh, it, it's another thing as we come through the seasons of the Gospels where we, to, we focus at this time of year every year on the Gospel. We're looking at Mark to remember that good news of the fact that God has come. And Mark is... I'm calling this series, The Misunderstood Messiah, he's got a very clear thing he wants to get across to his readers, and he opens with the statement, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And remember, Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. The the Greek word Christos literally means Messiah. When you read Jesus Christ in the scripture, you could literally say, Jesus Messiah, and you're reading it properly. So he tells in the the beginning these seven chapters of rapid fire stories that force us all to confront who Jesus is and a couple of chapters that show the disciples wrestling with it. And the last part of the book is literally the coronation, the unusual coronation of Jesus as the King. And Mark, as we've looked over the past few weeks, has reminded us, be be open to surprises in what God's going to do. Last week we saw the power of the Messiah and how we as people can respond to his power. And this week is another section. It's a bit longer, lots of stories, but I think they all have to do with what I'll call the people of the Messiah. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Like I say, it's a long chunk of scripture and it's a lot of stories, but it's in Mark 2 verse um, 15, 13, excuse me, 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. And one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, you see how Mark Strings these stories together. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and all the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he had told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, a lot of stories here, a lot going on in these verses, but I want to say it basically boils down to the fact that when it comes to the people around Jesus, there are two types of people. And there's always a danger in overgeneralizations, but I do have some visuals that will help you decide and, and agree with me that there are two types of people. First, when you think of peanut butter, there are smooth people and heaven forbid, there are crunchy people, right? Which one are you? Uh, maybe the way you eat your chocolate bar, the Kit Kat bar. Some people break off one whole piece. Some people, savages, just take a bite right out of the whole thing, Right? How about fries and ketchup, right? Are you a squirter or are you a dipper? Which one are you? Two types of people, right? Oreos. This is almost sacrilegious. Some of us, the wise ones, peel it apart, eat the middle, eat the cookies, but others of you just eat the whole thing at once. Can't believe it. And unless you think it's all about food, right? There also is two types of people when it comes to toilet paper, the the people who let it hang down in front and the savages who let it hang down behind. You know who you are, right? And I say these in jest because it's not a good idea to oversimplify and say there are two types of people. But I want to do that today because in chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus quotes a well-known proverb to talk about two types of people. And he lumps people into these two categories. And, and, and you know, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner's. That first category, the sinners, I I think those are the people on the margins. And we see these people all throughout the text. In in chapter 2, 14 to 16, Levi, the tax collector, the hated tax collector, and his friends, the quote, sinners, the outcasts that Jesus is having food with. Even in 2.18, the disciples become these outsiders because they're not towing the line about fasting. They're not keeping the rules. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, Jews were told to fast on the day of the atonement, but by the New Testament, the Pharisees were fasting every Monday and every Thursday, and John's disciples were doing the same to show their piety, but Jesus' disciples didn't fast. They were sinners. They weren't keeping the law according to these guys. Verses 23 and 24, again, the disciples harvesting grain on the Sabbath, Chapter 3, verse 1, the man with the withered hand. You know, in that culture, people with physical defects were seen as cursed by God, unclean. Verses 13 and 14, even the 12 that he called to him to be his disciples were not the normal disciples of a rabbi. These were the the outcasts and the marginal people of society. Verse 34 of chapter 3, those with him, he says, who are keeping the will of God, obeying the will of God, are actually uh, closer to him than his own blood, right? The outcasts, the people that are far away, these people that, that society would say should be avoided or at the very least tolerated from a distance. And yet Jesus seems to have no issues with these sinners, the margins. He's right in the thick of them. And then we see the righteous, or I would say those who have power, the ones who are seen by society as righteous. And because of that designation, they've, they've ele- been elevated to places of power. They have a reputation. Verse 16 of chapter 2, the teachers of the law who were Pharisees. And, and then in verse 18, these people that come and, and their first approach to Jesus' disciples is to assess whether they're doing the proper thing or not. 224, the Pharisees again. In chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians go out and they start to plot about how to get rid of Jesus. Now, you've got to understand this. The Pharisees, these people who were devoted to the Old Testament law and devoted to Yahweh, albeit misguided, join arms with the Herodians, who were Roman political zealots within the Jewish nation, to unite against a common foe, Jesus. Now, something like that, misguided Christians and political zealots uniting in a common purpose, that would never happen today, right? <laughs> but that's what, that's what we see happening. These, these people in power are embracing the opposite. The, the oil and water are mixing, actually, to try to, do, to come against Jesus. Even his family, in chapter 21, 22, they think he's crazy. And family was a, a, a noted institution that had a lot of power. In that culture, they were your people. They had a right to come and take care of Jesus. And yet Jesus, at the end, says, who's my mother and father and brothers? And it's, it's, it's the people that are here, that, that are doing the will of God. He, that's incendiary. That, that was radical rhetoric for him to say things like that. And see, in this contrast of these sinners and righteous, these marginal people and these powerful people, Mark is drawing your attention to the fact that in in chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus uses this proverb, they are words of irony and sarcasm. He takes this proverb to make a point in his his context. The Pharisees aren't righteous. He says in in the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew 5, 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying there are righteous and there are sinners. He's, he's using irony and I think a bit of sarcasm to contrast that. And his family, they were genuine in their concern, right? But, but he's using these words to say, you're genu- even, in your, even in your authenticity, even in your care, you can be misguided. He's exposing the hearts of all the people by using irony and maybe even sarcasm. And as you begin to spend time thinking about it, you can't help but realize that what he's saying here is more about posture than substance. It's more about the orientation or the posture that people have to Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 5, he's in the the temple. He says to the the people there, is it lawful to do good, to heal on the Sabbath, or to damage and hurt? And, And nobody answers. And Jesus says, you know, he's deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, at their posture toward what he's saying. But the opposite side, you see in chapter 3, verse 7, this huge crowd following Jesus, pressing against him. The 12, he says, come up to the mountain, and they come, they follow. The end of the book, whoever does God's will, whoever takes this orientation to me, that is my brother and my sister And my mother. And as you look at the posture toward Jesus, some are drawn to him and some are outraged. It's two streams of people, each group characterized by traits that you can identify. I see at least three contrasting pairs of traits. First, as we look through the text, we see need as opposed to sufficiency. One of the clear contrasts between these two types of people is that one has an obvious and unavoidable need and the other seems to to have it all together. We have people in the text needing healing, needing teaching, needing guidance, needing connection. And then others who, as they enter the scene, seem to be very self-sufficient. They don't need anything. They can come in with this posture of critique and analysis and evaluation. They're taken care of. They see Jesus from a distance and objectively are trying to evaluate him whereas others have this more needy stance. And Jesus, in our text, welcomes the needy. And he gets frustrated by those who feel sufficient. As we think about ourselves today, it's interesting to note that we tend to value the sufficient. And we, we value, we aspire to be sufficient. We tend to hide our need or stay away from those who are visibly needy because it threatens our own Self-sufficiency, our North American culture is geared toward success, sufficiency. And far too often our churches and our underlying attitudes have adopted the same mentality. To reword the saying of Jesus, it's not the self-sufficient who need help, it's the needy. But the problem is none of us are self-sufficient. We're all needy. We all have those moments of fear when we realize that we cannot control events around us. We, We can't do it. Just no way. We lose someone who's close to us. A secret that we've had hidden becomes exposed. Or someone who loves us says something that's incredibly hurtful. We, we have this thing we really want to succeed in and we fail and other people see it. In all those moments, our self-sufficiency goes by the wayside. This mirage we have of the fact that we have it all together falls apart. And we need to be a sinner Who needs a savior? We need to be a sick person who needs a doctor. We need to be the needy instead of the self-sufficient. Another set of contrasting traits is the teachable as opposed to the already convinced. We see the contrast in Levi, who's making good money and he's willing to leave his job as a tax collector and follow Jesus. And on the other side, those who would critique Levi, who would critique Jesus, fully convinced that these people he's hanging out with have no value to God. They're already convinced that those guys are too far gone to be of any value. We see the disciples following Jesus' teaching about fasting and Sabbath, but other people already knew better. This is not the right way that we should live. You know, we've seen a week where the inability of people to think critically and, and from a larger perspective has led to conflict and pain And suffering (laughs) and here let me be clear on this the problem is not that we don't agree that people need to think from a broader perspective and be open to self-critique and reflection we all agree with that no matter what side you fall on on the American election both sides would say the other side needs to think about the bigger picture they need to listen to other sources they need to be critical in their thinking both sides would say that see the issue isn't helping others move to that position (laughs) that's not what we all think The others should move to that position. The issue is being humble enough to go there yourself, to be teachable, to refuse to demonize the other side. Because people on both sides demonize the other side, saying they need to see the bigger picture. And the reality is people on both sides are created in the image of God. Now, I'm not saying we don't engage in dialogue, but I'm saying once once we begin to demonize and hate And use words like idiots. And you know what we're doing? We're talking about people created in the image of God. And and they may be wrong, but they're deeply loved by him. He's calling them to himself. And rather than make our first priority, being sure that they are right like us, we need to treat them with love and respect as people who are, are created in his image. You know, Jake just did a devotion the other day about the welcoming prayer and being willing to to let things come to us and let God have his way in these situations. It's a challenge. It's a real challenge. Because what we want to do is be the sufficient and already convinced. And we know we're right. And it, even if you are right, it doesn't give you the, the power to demean and to cut down. And to speak poorly of, of the other side. We need to be humble enough to be open to what God's doing in our situation whether we think we're right and the other people are wrong or not. That's the, it, it really comes down to listening to Jesus. That's the third contrast. There's, there's people following Jesus as opposed to keeping tradition. You see that in the text, right? Is fasting wrong? Of course fasting's not wrong, but Jesus' disciples aren't doing. Is, is keeping the Sabbath wrong? No, but but the way you're viewing it, Jesus says, is totally warped. Is it wrong to love your family and to show them honor and respect? No, but in all of these traditional things that are right, you've got to be following the teachings of Jesus, because humans, as a t- we have a tendency to develop these rituals and these practices and the beliefs, and then they become more important than the person underlying it, the person who... who who led us to that place in the first place. Churches are notorious for this. And I mean, I think spiritual practices and traditions, I mean, we're talking about rhythms of worship. We have seasons of the Christian year. We're doing all that. But I want to tell you, those are a means to an end, not the end and of themselves. And if the practice of your faith and your religious rituals aren't making you more like Jesus... You're wasting your time. We can be active, but in the wrong direction. Uh, There's a character I love in a movie. The movie is by uh, one of the M. Night Shyamalan movies called Lady in the Water. Basic story is there's a a building superintendent. It's kind of out there. There's a building superintendent named Cleveland Heap, and he's taking care of the tenants in his building. And one night he goes out to the pool and he rescues this girl that's trapped in the pool. And I know it doesn't make any sense, but really she's part of a mythical story. And he has to help her get back into the mythical story. It's it's kind of an out there thing. But the the funny thing that I love about the movie are the characters that live in the apartment building. They're they're unique and fascinating. And there's one guy that I'm really drawn to named Reggie. And Reggie is a bit of a fitness nut. He's he's really committed to being fit and strong. And I just want to show you about a minute clip from the movie and then I'll come and talk a little bit about Reggie. kind of look like maybe you can work out a little bit, right? I could give you a vein like that. I could make it look just like this, right? Most people say, hey, what's wrong with you, Reggie? Why are you only working out on one side of your body? Tell them it's like an experiment. I'm like a scientist. This morning, I measured my bicep. Four and a half inch difference from one side to the other. Take a guess at the difference between my thighs. Hello, Reggie. Hey. 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 Uh, I mean, the new guy. Talking science. Okay. That's great. Okay, that's Reggie. Reggie, who is as a part of an experiment, is only working out on one side of his body. Who's gloating over the fact that his bicep on one arm is four and a half inches bigger than his bicep on the other arm. He's active. He's devoted. He's committed, and he's foolish. Because he's not being fully formed into anything. He's, he's throwing his body totally off by what he calls as science, right? Love that clip. Because you know what happens? Sometimes we Christians exercise our muscle knowledge of knowledge so much that it's huge and our, and our knowledge is just ripped, powerful, and our compassion is wilted. You see, we can do things that, that strengthen a part of our body through these rituals and yet if we're not being fully formed into the image of Jesus, it's, it's, it's a misdirection. It's heading... Because what Jesus has done has come to transform us wholly into his image, to shape us into being the people of the Messiah. And that, that's the question of the text. Will we be the people of the Messiah? And it has... It really has a little... Very little to do with what we say we believe, and everything to do with how we live out what we believe. How many of you, as you were, I'm sure most of you, watched the news at some point on Wednesday, and and as you saw the chaos in front of the U.S. Capitol building, how many of you saw several Jesus signs? It, It devastates me. How do you read the life of Jesus, which ended physically in crucifixion, prior to resurrection, how do you read that and somehow think that Jesus would be storming the political halls of power? When he's talking to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight to have me released. See, the whole point is we've become followers of Jesus that don't look like Jesus. And if we're not careful, it creates way more havoc and damage. And the text says today, Will you be the people of the Messiah? There's a verse in Acts 11. It says, The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And that, that, it's not necessarily a term of of love and endorsement. Often it was a term of derision. But but that Greek term for Christians literally is little Christ. And, And I told you before, Christ is not a last name, it's a Messiah. It means Messiah, Christos. So the, the, the believers were first called little messiahs in Antioch. What, what did those kind of people look like? They look like their messiah. They look like the one who's called them. They look like the one who's leading them. And as we look at this text, what do we see about God? And when I say God, I mean Trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit. First thing we see is that God is drawn to those at the margins. You can't read the Bible and miss this. Jesus is always drawn to the outcasts. He came to Mary, a Jewish teenage girl, unwed. She had a baby in Bethlehem, a nowhere town. Nothing was there. They think the the population before the census might have been around 300 people. And who does he tell first? The shepherds. You cannot miss the fact of what God's doing. And some of you are thinking, oh, Mark said it was Epiphany. That's when we remember the Magi, the three kings. He came to the kings too. Yes, he did. Rich and powerful kings who weren't Jews and who were from Babylon. Right? Those guys weren't loved and accepted in Israel. They were kings from the area of the world that that Israel hated. See, these aren't the people that you would expect the Messiah to come to, but that's where he goes. The Messiah goes to the margins, to the outcasts. It's not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. True. God is always drawn to the weak and needy. In Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And let me tell you, that's good news, because I'll ask a question. There's only 10 of us in the building. You guys can participate or not, because nobody at home will know. But at home, (laughs) how many of you, on a regular basis, feel powerful and competent? And put together. How many of you feel like you've got this thing life licked? You've got it figured out. You're really good at it. You've got it all together. Nobody in here raised their hand. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> how many of you feel broken hearted and crushed in spirit at times? How many of you feel overwhelmed? How many of you, when, when you hear of a tragic loss in our community like this lovely man, Dale Seamus, how many of you just feel kicked in the gut and broken? The good news is those are the kind of people that God's drawn to. So we need to focus less on trying to sell ourselves to the world as competent and self-sufficient and spend more time humbly and honestly admitting our need. Because another thing we see about the Messiah is that God resists the proud. It's happening all through the text. Those who know better, those who are powerful, those who critique from a distance, Jesus doesn't even have the time to mess with them. He's come for the humble and the needy. That little teenage girl, Mary, when she found out she was pregnant with the Messiah, remember what she's saying in Luke chapter 1? His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. And what she's doing there, she's echoing words from the Old Testament. She's stealing things she's heard in her time at the synagogue. Unless you think it was just her, both Peter and John in their letters in the New Testament, quote Proverbs 3, 34, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, this destabilizing of our power and our pride is vital if we're ever going to follow Jesus. It's why we see in the text that Jesus re-centers everything around himself. That's why it's so hard for those used to centering their lives around religious tradition to actually come to Jesus, because Jesus takes their tradition, and instead of focusing on the tradition, re-centers it around himself. In 2, verse 19, they're asking about fasting, something they're really committed to, and Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't as long as they have him with them. He's refocusing that around him. In chapter 2, 28, they're questioning about the Sabbath, and he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is reframing all of reality around himself. That's why in John 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. See, he's... He's the image of God. He's the prototype of what humanity would look like without sin. And he calls us to follow, to be the people of the Messiah. And if you take nothing else away from today, take this. His people follow his example. Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 2, 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, this is... This is a day-to-day experience that we would follow his example. If God is drawn to the people on the margins, so should we be drawn to people on the margins. Those who are in our, ta- in our town are suffering and needy. Those who are societal outcasts. Those who, who struggle. I mean, did you hear the prayer of Jake today where we prayed for the whole... Those people are all over the world. And God is drawn to those on the margins, the needy. So his people, people of the Messiah, should be... Praying and acting in ways that help to, to love and serve and care for those. You know why? Because we are needy. We're all broken. And yet Christ came to us. And he calls us to be the people of the Messiah, drawn to the needy, to follow his example. We resist the proud because that's what he does. We don't give in to people who appear to hold worldly power. We we don't have to have it ourselves. That's, that's where we get deluded. We think if we can just get the power, we can fix the world. We can help the people on the outcasts if we just have enough power. Well, <laughs> Jesus didn't think that way. Where do you ever see him concerned about taking over Rome? Holding a meeting with his disciples to try to figure out how to dethrone Herod. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. He didn't need that because he knew that his way would bring about a deeper change, that the example of love and sacrificial service would impact hearts by the power of the Spirit of God. And he he wants to recenter everything around him and not what we can do and not what power we have and not our success and sufficiency. He wants everything to be refocused around him and that, that we as his body would live out his life in the world. There's an interesting story about Oliver Cromwell. I'll just wrap up with this. He was Lord Protector of England in the 1650s. And during his reign, the British government was struggling. They began to run low on silver for coins. So Lord Cromwell sent out his aides and his men. And he, he said, go anywhere in the, in the place and see if you can find silver that we could melt down for coins. And after they went and they looked, they said, the only silver that we can find are the statues of the saints standing in the corners of the cathedral. And in this great quote, Cromwell replies, good. We'll melt down the saints and put them in circulation." And, and that's, that's the image. I love that because that's what we, we, we... The saints are supposed to be melted down, poured out, given to the world, put into circulation. That's you and me. He wants us to be melted. In the words of communion. he wants us to be poured out for the world. To be put into circulation for the good of all those who are needy. To love and serve those on the margins. To humble ourselves and not be caught up in a quest for pride or power. But to live as examples of who he is. We are the body of Christ right here in hope. And as people look at us, the hope is that they will get a glimpse of Jesus and his deep and unending love for them. And that this glimpse will be so captivating that they surrender to this love and leadership and begin being transformed by the gospel. You know, the vision for our church one we've, we settled on a few years ago as we, we tried to say, what is it that we really want to see? If, if we could be doing effective ministry in hope, what would we see? What is our greatest hope? And we said, we envision lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. Not by, by our slick programs, by our wisdom, by our good teaching or our music or, or the good reputation we have, but by the power of, of the gospel, that those on the margins, those who are needy and struggling would have their lives renewed. And as that happened, a community of hope would be transformed. That's, that's the vision that, that, that we see in the text. That's what Jesus is doing. And it goes a totally opposite way than the people in power think it should go. But if we're going to be people of Messiah, we follow his steps and his leadership, but not our own. Let's pray. it 's been a it's been a hard week we've been confronted with grief and with uh, shock and and um, just things that we none of us expected this time last week and yet uh, it's so appropriate that we start our worship services just remembering that you are with us and and I pray God today that we could be um, Respond to that presence that we could be the people of the Messiah, that we could love and care for those on the margins, the needy, the broken, just as you have loved and cared for us. That when it comes to our methods, God, that we would not use pride or power or feel like we have to be in control, but that we would trust that your spirit, as we follow your example, can do miraculous things, just as we see in your life. That that crucifixions and struggles and death and pain that we endure are followed by resurrection and power, and transformation, and healing. God, make us uh, to be the people of the Messiah. Help us to reflect your character to the world. Help them to see you and your undying and unending love for them in our interactions, in our, in our words, in the, the people that we, we talk to, in the people that we, we come in contact with at the grocery store, at work, and on the street. Just may they see you clearly in us. And may that be the beginning of lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. To all of you who've been called and have surrendered to the call to be people of the Messiah, hear this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.